Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 19th. In today's news, Donald Trump maneuvers to delay the final vote count in order to sow doubts about his loss. The lame duck president enacts rules to allow mass logging in national forests without environmental review, potentially jeopardizing our water supply. And a former Green Beret pleads guilty to spying for Russia. But first, the big idea. Later today, the United States will pass 250,000 confirmed deaths from the coronavirus. Still, little has changed since we crossed previously painful milestones. More than 3 million people in our country right now are estimated to be contagious with the virus. The number is significantly larger than the official case count, which is based solely on those who have actually tested positive. To put the 3 million plus figure in perspective, Joel Achenbach notes that it's about 1% of the population. It's about equal to the number of public school teachers in the entire country, or the number of truck drivers. If the University of Michigan's football stadium were packed with a random selection of Americans, about a thousand of them would be contagious right now. Columbia University epidemiologist Jeff Shaman says his model estimates that 3.6 million Americans are infected and shedding enough virus right now to infect others. Many don't know it. That's a 34% week-to-week increase that followed a 36% increase in the previous week. The estimate from Shaman does not include an approximately equal number of latent infections among people who have caught the virus in recent days and can't pass it on yet because it's still incubating, but they still will. Shaman says it's not bad. It's really, really, really bad. Separately, modelers at the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation estimated overnight that approximately 3.2 million people have gotten infected with COVID since Election Day. That is a figure significantly larger than the approximately 2 million people who have officially tested positive. Long lines and delayed results continue to once again plague test centers as Thanksgiving nears. Testing sites from New York to Washington to Oregon are reporting lines stretching three to four to five hours, and results are taking as long as five days to get. William Wan reports that in Denver, officials shut down one testing site within an hour of opening it yesterday because it had reached capacity. At another site, lines grew so long that officials closed over concerns about traffic safety. In New York, residents are standing in line for hours and hours. In Olympia, Washington, officials have had to turn away as many as 200 cars in line in recent days because labs reached capacity. They couldn't handle any more tests. The problem is that even as our nation's testing capacity expanded, and it did, demand has expanded even more. At first, it was driven by businesses resuming, schools reopening, and people emerging from their homes. But in recent months, the record-breaking rise in new infections has sent demand for tests surging even higher, and it's just outstripping the ability of labs to keep up. In addition to running out of necessary chemicals and swabs, as happened repeatedly early in the pandemic, many labs say they're running short of other equipment, such as pipettes, that laboratory tool that's used to carry fluid for anyone who took high school chemistry. Testing sites say they are also experiencing shortages of workers to handle the surge. In New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced yesterday that he is suspending all classes across the entire public school system. That's the country's largest, with 1.1 million students because of surging infections. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir became the first governor as part of this third wave to announce a statewide school closure. He's forcing all public and private schools to close at the end of this week, and public universities are going to be required to do the same. 
Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers just announced that he is extending his state's indoor mask mandate into 2021. He called on Republicans in the state legislature to drop a lawsuit aimed at overturning his mandate. Evers is one of seven governors, five Democrats and two Republicans, who have written an op-ed for today's Washington Post urging Americans to stay home for Thanksgiving. The other Democrats are Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan, Tim Walls from Minnesota, J.B. Pritzker from Illinois, Bashir from Kentucky, and the Republicans are DeWine from Ohio, Mike DeWine, and Eric Holcomb from Indiana. As hard as it will be to not see your family this Thanksgiving, the governor's right, imagine how much harder it would be if their chairs are empty next year. This is happening as the reports from the front lines get more dire by the day. Overwhelmed hospitals are converting chapels, cafeterias, and waiting rooms into patient treatment areas. The number of people hospitalized with COVID in ICUs right now, this morning, is over 80,000. It's doubled in the past month, and it's set new records every day over the last week. In Reno, Nevada, the renowned regional medical center has begun putting COVID patients into its parking garage because the hospital is overflowing. A contact tracer in North Dakota says the virus is so rampant there that the government has given up trying to do contact tracing. Even if they had enough staff to call up everyone's workplace and trace people who contacted people who have the virus, there are now so many new infections in North Dakota that it wouldn't matter. At this point, they're just trying to let people know that they have it. Here in Washington, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell recessed his chamber a day earlier than planned because of concerns about a new COVID outbreak on Capitol Hill. Republican aides said taking an extra long Thanksgiving break was prompted by attendance issues surrounding the coronavirus threat following news that Senator Chuck Grassley, the Republican from Iowa, tested positive less than 24 hours after he had been in close contact with several of his colleagues. But the lax attitude continues. Outgoing Senator Martha McSally, an Arizona Republican who lost her race, gathered 21 of her aides yesterday right outside the Senate chamber for a tightly packed maskless farewell they all posed for a photo and were chatting on a Capitol staircase until Senate staffers broke up the gathering. This pandemic, as we've talked about so often, has brought out the worst in some people. A newly filed wrongful death lawsuit tied to a outbreak at a Tyson's food pork processing plant in Iowa, for example, alleges that during the early stages of the pandemic, the company ordered employees to report to work at the same time that supervisors privately were wagering money on the number of their workers who would get infected. You heard that right. Supervisors allegedly privately wagered money on the number of their workers who would get infected, even as they were making them come to work. But the pandemic has also brought out the best in folks. A Massachusetts mom lost her 15-year-old daughter, Holly, unexpectedly, just as the pandemic began. To cope, she sat down at Holly's beloved sewing machine, and she made thousands and thousands and thousands of masks. She's been doing it nonstop since March. Sharon Hebert says that mask making has helped her heal. She said she wasn't able to get therapy because everything had shut down. So she had to create her own therapy. And this was it. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, the Trump campaign wired $3 million last night to election officials in Wisconsin to start a recount in the state's two largest and most Democratic counties. 
Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who has taken on the president's legal team, asked a federal judge to consider ordering the Republican-controlled legislature in Pennsylvania to select that state's electors. And Trump egged on a group of GOP lawmakers in Michigan who are pushing for an audit of the vote before it's certified. My colleagues Amy Gardner, Bob Costa, Roz Helderman, and Michelle Yehi Lee report that Giuliani has been telling Trump and associates privately that his real game plan is actually just to pressure Republican lawmakers and officials across the political map to stall the vote certification for as long as possible in an effort to get Republican lawmakers to pick electors and disrupt the Electoral College when it convenes next month. Trump is bought in to this, and he's encouraging what to put a finer point on it, is a plan to subvert democracy and defy the will of the American people. But that outcome appears impossible. It is against the law in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin law gives no role to the legislature in choosing electors. And there's little public will in most other states to pursue such a dangerous path. Behind this thin Hail Mary is what several Trump advisors say is his real goal, Sowing doubt in Biden's victory with the president's most ardent supporters in order to keep alive his prospects to be able to run for president again in 2024. Trump has suffered defeat after defeat in courtrooms around the country this week. And this new strategy is a tacit acknowledgement that he has failed to muster any evidence to support his unfounded claims that there is widespread fraud. Indeed, the Trump campaign agreed yesterday to a joint stipulation in court in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, that there was no fraud in the election. even as it continued to press for the tossing of mail ballots with voter information missing from their envelopes. Several Republicans told my colleagues that Giuliani himself admits when he's in private that they don't actually have a good legal case. But that's not stopping Giuliani from embarrassing himself more and more every day. Robin Gavon put it nicely. As a culture, we like to believe that with age comes wisdom. The truth of it may be that age only makes people more obviously what they have always been. Giuliani at 76, has revealed himself to be a man who believes that he can summon truth from falsehoods, bend the law to his will, and conjure whatever reality suits him simply by speaking his hopes and dreams aloud. He wears a Yankees World Series ring, even though he didn't earn it. The diamonds sparkle next to a pinky ring. Yes, Giuliani wears a pinky ring. The mere fact of it is an abomination. Number two, in a last-minute change before leaving office, the Trump administration last night finalized a rule that will allow the U.S. Forest Service to log and otherwise manage 2,800 acres of forest in the West without any environmental impact review. Daryl Fears and Juliet Eilpern report that the impact of this rule change goes far beyond a single parcel of 2,800 acres. What they're really doing is weakening requirements under the National Environmental Policy Act, called NEPA, that compel the Forest Service to study the potential environmental harm of development and to publicly share the scientific analysis with the public so that people can submit informed comments on the proposed work. This new rule change, which goes into effect today, gives Forest Service officials broad authority to use loopholes called categorical exclusions to bypass requirements under the law. Categorical exclusions are projects deemed to have no environmental impact. And as the rule is written, the one that goes into effect today, they will be able to be applied across the nearly 200 million acres of forest that the Forest Service manages. 
Allison Flint, a senior attorney for the Wilderness Society, explains that these categorical exclusions are really permission slips for loggers to cut trees and developers to build roads without informing local communities of the work that they're doing. One reason this Trump gambit is especially worrisome is that our forests are our biggest source of drinking water. More than 150 million Americans get their water from forests, forests that Trump is putting in jeopardy. Number three, Peter Debbins, a 45-year-old from Northern Virginia, pleaded guilty yesterday to sharing classified information with his Russian handlers for more than a decade while serving in the Army and as a defense contractor with a top-secret security clearance. In return for the information that he shared for betraying our country, Debbins says he was given a 1000 bucks, a bottle of cognac, and a Russian military uniform. In a sworn statement to investigators, Debbins says the Russians also offered him the services of prostitutes, but he claims he declined them. Debbins was a graduate of and teacher at the D.C.-based Institute of World Politics, This is a small but very influential school in conservative foreign policy circles. Former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and military contractor Eric Prince both have ties to the school. In early 2017, according to emails obtained by my colleague Rachel Weiner, Debbins told a friend that he was a candidate for a position on Trump's National Security Council, specifically Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia and Central Asia. Now, he never served in the Trump administration, but when the feds opened an espionage investigation into him, he had a job offer to be a contractor for the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, the Institute of World Politics didn't respond to our repeated requests for comment, but after we reached out, they removed all content referring to Debbins from their website. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 19th. Thank you for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.